Hi, and welcome to the Cuvée Collective podcast. I'm Andrew Allison, the CEO and co-founder of Cuvée Collective. We are kicking off the second season of Wine and Web 3. We'll be interviewing movers and shakers across the wine industry, the people that we believe are moving the industry forward. Today's interview is with Elan Fayard, owner of Azure Wines. We'll be doing an NFT collection with Azure a little bit later this year. But what is extremely exciting about this interview with Elan is our opportunity to visit her private tasting room, which is in the heart of of Napa, that is off the beaten track, invite-only property, beautiful oak groves covered in Spanish moss. It's an amazing place to have a wine tasting. We really hope you love this interview with Elan. We had a great time recording it. Good morning, Elan. Good morning. Thank you for having us on your beautiful property in Napa Valley this morning. It is a gorgeous, clear day with very crisp morning air. So walking around your property this morning was amazing. So thanks for having us out. Happy to have you. Could you just introduce yourself and then I'll ask you to introduce your brand. So um, my name is Elan Fayard. Um, I am a sole uh, producer, female producer here in the Napa Valley. Um, I started my brand Azure and Omprint in 2007. Wow. So that's definitely a journey in itself because we're many years from 2007. Many startups don't make it out of their first year. Yeah. And so when you started this brand, could you maybe just introduce the brand, what your idea was at the time and what you've grown the business into today? Absolutely. It really started organically. So I um, have a history of living in wine countries, but not um, actively being a part of it through my family. My uh, parents in the 80s would actually take my sisters and I out wine tasting. And back then it was very much more farmland and certainly children were welcome. So we we couldn't enjoy wine, but what it did for me was introduce me to the wine industry and kind of the culture around wine. And so from there, I was always somehow drawn to the wine industry. Fast forward a bit, we move up to Oregon, and I lived in Eugene, Oregon for much of my life. I went to the University of Oregon and had the intention to become a journalist. So the goal for me was actually to become a documentarian and do food, wine, and travel, all the good things. So I started uh, my studies within uh, journalism, and I studied abroad my sophomore year in France with the intrigue into that culture of wine and food. And it actually led me down the path of wine. So from there, um, I went and lived in Bordeaux for a summer. And then when I graduated from university, I went and lived in Provence for two years. And it was actually by living in Provence and having that experience that um, I came back to Napa Valley and truly organically started my brand. So in Provence, I I was introduced to quality rosé something that was not being made in the United States at the time. This was in 2006 when rosé was not hip and hot. It was box wine and white zin. And when I came back here, I went to look for a good quality rosé that reminded me of my time in Provence and no one was doing it. And so I literally started making rosé in my garage um, with me and my French friends at the time. And it was actually by doing that in 2006 when I went I'm going to kick myself if I'm not the one that 
is the first really to introduce this style, you know, and I really kind of thought if this resonates with me, I think it will resonate with others. So 2007 was my first release. Um, I made about 25, 50, maybe 25, 50 cases and pounded the pavement and tried to sell every single bottle and convince people and introduce <laughs> people to a new style of rosé. So it was really how I got kind of off the ground was by being innovative and somewhat pioneering a new style that was not done in, in Napa Valley. And I don't know that it was done in the United States at the time either. Uh, so fast forward to today, that was really the first pillar of how I started to produce wines. But now I produce wines, uh, all di many different varietals, really known for our Cabernets. Um, we're also really known for our great blends. They're unique blends, very delicious. And then I also started on print um, as well, which means imprint in French. And the whole idea with the on print brand is that it's higher end premium vineyards really coveted fruit from the napa valley 100 cases or less so that means four barrels or less and it's very focused winemaking it's always one vineyard and one varietal so that you're really tasting the purity of the fruit and where it's grown that's incredible so just to quickly touch on it do you still have the journalistic itch or is it remained unscratched a hundred percent. It's actually something that I do somewhat on the side for myself, but it is something that I still plan to explore in the future. I'd love to write a book. Um, I do all of my own um, mailing list letters, so that has some journalistic aspect or at least writing. Mm -hmm. um, but I do. I, I still love journalism and am certainly drawn to it. That's awesome. And so for the brand today, what varietals do you produce? I know Rosé was a big part of your program early on and it's a part of the brand identity, but you produce many other varietals as well, right? Yes, I do. So a lot of people know me for the Rosé because of the fact that it was such a foothold of the brand and really the innovator, you know, um, that that made people kind of understand, oh, wow, this is Azure, this is what they do. But I, I actually have a lot of uh, really beautiful high-end reds that are only available through private tastings, through the allocation, through membership. And so a, a lot of times, many people are not aware of the fact that there are those other wines because they're, they don't have access to them out in the greater market. And I would love to ask about that, but let's maybe table that for a second. So when you think of your journey over the years, what were some of the big inflection points where you started to have some breakthrough success that you might not have recognized at the time, but looking back, you're like, wow, that was a, a big step up. Early on, I think it was probably maybe three years in production. Um, Vogue found uh, my rosé and rated it one of the best rosés in the world. I think they had 10 rosés. And so it really put me on the map as a serious producer for rosé, for a wine that wasn't looked at as being serious. So wow. I think that was that was a big part of it. Um, it was also probably one of my first placements in Napa Valley at a time when the wine lists were white wine and red wine. There was no rosé, rosé, you know, uh, varietal or designation. 
And uh, a really nice restaurant here in Napa Valley decided to put the rosé by the glass under the whites because there wasn't that category. And it made kind of that, or had that introduction to the fact that, oh, this can be a good wine. I'm going to take wow. this a little more seriously. So I think that was also a, a big point where it helped to introduce rosé in a different way. Was that approximate to the Vogue uh, coverage or was it like a year or two after? A, a little bit before. Okay. Yeah. And, but wine by the glass or getting on a wine by the glass list is obviously economically one of the best places to be for a brand. So that's, that's amazing. Huge. And for introduction, because you think what, when you come to Napa Valley, there's an openness to trying new things, especially if you're at a nice restaurant, you trust the sommelier. Ooh, I haven't had this bridal. I don't know this producer. You're more inclined to be open to the possibility. And so that's really where it, it helped to introduce the wine in a safe way to yeah. consumers. That, that makes a ton of sense. And so when you look back on your journey, what were some of the, the pitfalls, the things that you wish that you had steered clear of or you um, that didn't quite pan out on some of the, the future bets that you had made at the time? Oh, gosh, I look at it like it was all part of the natural process of things. So even the the thing, the the challenging points were points that made me grow. So I'd actually say I wouldn't change anything about it. It was all part of it. Learnings. All, all learnings. Yeah. And so today, if somebody wants to to visit you for a tasting, what, I mean, this is a, a beautiful property. It's covered in amazing oaks with Spanish moss hanging from them. And so maybe you could just talk a little bit about what a tasting experience with yourself looks like. So our tasting experiences are by invitation only. Um, traditionally, we host uh, through our uh, referral partners or if you are a member or referred by a member. Um, there is an old barn uh, that we have that was built in 1930. And essentially what I did was renovate it. I took the barn down completely and rebuilt it. So all the wood inside is the original 1930s wow. wood. Um, same with the tin roof inside, but then on the outside, it's all new and weatherproofed. And so for me, um, the experience is really trying to create, br bring you back to a time, maybe a simpler time, where you're connected to nature, you're connected to the seasons. You know, we have these large uh, walls that essentially open up that you can really take in the outdoor, indoor, outdoor kind of experience. Mm -hmm. um, so guests will experience a very exclusive, um, unique experience for Napa Valley. I'd say it's one that's connected and authentic. It's not commercial. You know, it's one of those where um, uh, my goal is to welcome people with great wine, great hospitality, and a great location. And then as you shared, the space itself uh, lends to an incredible experience as well. So. Yeah. And you've got some amazing views off of the back porch on, and I mean, if that's, that's a modern day barn, I, uh, people, people be in for a treat because this <laughs> is the furthest thing from a barn. It's a beautiful property. But um, when, when you're thinking about the future, what are some of the challenges that you think the wine industry has coming down the pipe and how, how are you working to address them to keep your brand growing and established? Two things come to mind for me. One is uh, climate change. 
the fact that we are we are certainly having many years of drought which affects fruit production fruit availability fires so uh overall just accessibility to viable fruit um unfortunately there's nothing that i feel that i can myself do uh in in that case um, I think it's the holistic, you know, the the whole of the community pulling together to figure out ways in which we can we can change that or weather that. Um, the other one that I see that's really present is larger conglomerates coming in and purchasing vineyards and locking up that fruit. So small producers are having a lot more difficult time finding fruit and ultimately keeping your fruit source so that there's consistency. So that's really kind of the family owned is a lot a lot fewer and far between. Yeah, that that definitely makes sense. And it's interesting that the at, at the fruit level that's where the challenge is because some of these huge brands just will consume any amount of fruit required because they've got the grocery distribution or what have right, you. Right. When you think about taking your brand to market, what are some of the outlets that have proven really successful for you in terms of generating the revenue to uh, you know, keep the brand going? Very good question. So this is actually where I am unique. I am not distributed. So I only produce for my members and for uh, guests that are coming and purchasing wine. Um, that is a unique model because most people do distribute their wines. For me, at kind of one of those learning points early on was that if you're producing a quality rosé, which is not a tier that really is present even still to this day in the broader market, it's very hard to create a new tier in the distribution world. So I'm, I would be competing with lower end rosé all day kind of kind of wines, you know, and that's okay, but it's a different wine. You know, I, I like to say that my rosé is, is, is a, a gastronomic rosé. It's really a quality wine. And so it's hard to uh, really kind of introduce that to the broader market unless you're actually here and tasting it and, and really understand, oh, wow, this is different than what you would find on your shelf. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. And from a um of finding new members. You, you spoke about referrals as one of the big sources for folks that want to discover your brand. And is there um, a, like a best practice when it comes to other people that operate brands that are not distributed like yourself that you always do? Do you always work with certain numbers of concierge or an, uh, anything that has to do in the referral category that you found like a, a always always follow this formula? I think it's really aligning with people that are looking for the same thing and those who are the gatekeepers, you know, that kind of in-between person that can say, okay, here I am, a visitor to Napa Valley. Where do I go if I want to find under-the-radar wineries, if I want to find family-owned, you know, and, and that's really knowing those people. And those are certain concierge that that know this kind of world in Napa Valley. It's certain drivers and tour companies. Usually I would say kind of the larger tour companies, larger uh, hotels are not, are gonna be more on the side of larger volume. volume. That, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, 
if, if you were going to go back and give a younger you some advice for building this brand, what you said you wouldn't change anything, but what what are some of the the ways that you would think about setting yourself up for the same level of success in terms of getting yourself ready and prepared? It's a great question. I mean, the thing that comes to mind initially is just be bold. You know, like those times that maybe I questioned what I was doing or would it work or economic influences that, you know, made it scary to be a business owner and putting all your money into producing this wine. Just, you know, be bold, trust in the process. Um, I think at a young age, why I was able to do what I did was because I kind of equate it to having a lot of fire in your youth, you know, how we all have that passion and the security piece is not a huge component when you're younger. You know, when you get older, you have responsibility, you have children, you have your jobs. But as a young person, you are in that place of creation. So for me, I kind of look back at that time of just having a lot of, of fire of will to create. And so I would encourage even more so that side of, of when I was younger. Yeah, willingness to take those risks, knowing that at that stage in your life, you could maybe palette more uh, if they didn't pan out. A hundred percent. Well, I, I think that's that's an incredible introduction to the brand. Maybe we can dive into some of the things that you do now day to day with the business. So how, how many wines do you make today? Maybe we could talk about some of the individual varietals that you you work on and um, how, how you grew from just a, a big rosé producer to uh, all these other brands yeah. or varietals. Yeah, so I would say the common thread in all of the wines and, and ultimately the brand is innovation. So first it started with rosé and then it was producing unique blends that were the highest end wines. So at the time in Napa Valley, usually the highest end wine was the Cabernet. It was not a blend. And so it was also going against the grain to say this wine, actually the blend, is really the highest end wine, the most premium that we produce. So it was innovative in that sense as well as not following kind of- Non-traditional. Traditional, the yeah. standard, oh, well, this is what everyone else does, so then we do this, you know? Whereas blends, the other thing with blends is blends are an incredible wine because you have the possibility, you're not constrained by the varietal, right? Mm -hmm. So you can really pick and choose. Right which varietal, which vineyards, what, you, what you'd what you like to bring into the wine. So that was a, another innovative thing that um, I did with the brand early on. And then also producing varietals that are very few and far between here in Napa Valley. Cabernet's King here in Napa, of course, I produce cabs from many different locations in Napa Valley, but I also produce uh, Grenache that's quite rare. So I, I, ha I produce about 150 cases of Grenache under the on-print label. Very hard to come by uh, in Napa Valley and very hard to come by quality Grenache. So there's that varietal. There are other uh, interesting blends that we're doing that we're adding varietals that you, you maybe haven't heard of as much, not kind of the traditional varietals. Um, I myself really do love Pinot Noir, despite the fact that I'm not in 
Pinot wine country. And so I'm producing a Pinot Noir from uh, Sonoma, uh, the region that I really love, which is the Russian River from a specific vineyard out there that really is kind of bringing out that beautiful essence of of Sonoma County right. as well. Yeah. Uh, Cam and I did our, our undergrad at Sonoma in, in wine, so we've spent more hours than enough in the Russian River Valley. That. That, that's, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, when it comes to how you go through picking quantities that you want to produce and sourcing fruit, what what are some of the biggest challenges in that process when you actually have to go talk and source and negotiate with the actual vintners themselves? Maybe there's some things that people don't commonly talk about in that space. So you mentioned that you're getting competitive pressures on pricing and sourcing, but what does that, let's double click on that. What does that look like when, how do you you go walk up to somebody's property and knock on the door and say, hey, I'd like to buy your fruit. How, how does that buying process work? Yeah, so um, relationships. You know, in, in Napa, it is about relationships, About it's about knowing the grower, how they farm and aligning yourself with growers that are focused first off on quality and then second on your philosophy of winemaking. So I think this goes to my philosophy of the wines that I produce. For me, the, the one word that I really focus on for every single wine that I produce is elegance. Elegance comes down to balance. So you have to have balance in the fruit, balance in the vineyard to produce an elegant wine. And so what does balance mean? It means having the natural sugars at a level that you that you are looking for and then also the natural acidity. Sometimes people think acidity is a, is a bad word when it comes to wine. You have to have those two in balance because if one is higher or out of balance, then you'll, you'll taste a wine. If it has higher sugar levels, you're going to get something that's overly ripe that has kind of this heavy um, component on the palate. If it's too acidic, you're going to find something that's kind of tart. Maybe even if it's a red, feeling like it's green or has that kind of chalk sensation, that tannic sensation that we can sometimes experience. And that's not balanced either. So it's really finding the, the balance. How you do that is partnering with people that are really focused on the details and the quality in the vineyard. So recently I just considered another vineyard um, for the on-print wines, another Cabernet vineyard designate. And what I what my process is, is going up there and seeing the vineyards. It's seeing how they care for the vineyards. You can see the health of a vine by walking through it. Um, it's talking to the, grower it's understanding what their process is what how do they care for the vines how do they care for the holistic side of what they do which is growing the fruit but also creating that sustainability that can come year after year and then additionally what i do is i'll taste wines from that vineyard so that, that, also, that other people had made that other people have made that they have made so that there's kind of that understanding of the thread okay this is presenting this characteristic, even though there's different winemakers and different wines, you can start to see where there's a common thread. Yeah, it sounds like you said it right at the, the top of that, but it's really the relationship and how much the they're willing to collaborate and have value alignment with you um, for a long period of time. And so when you work on a, a fruit contract, is it for a year? Is it a year to start and then goes to multi-year? How how does it work? Yeah, how does that work? Yeah, there are many different 
terms. You can do an evergreen contract, which is you set your terms and you have to give many years notice before you're able to get out of the vineyard. Um, that locks you in. It, and in a good way, if you decide you really want that to be part of your winemaking program and you want that consistency. But the other side of it too is there are other contracts and relationships where you can just do it for the year. You make sure that that vineyard is really producing the way that you want it to produce. And then you can create a longer term contract or you just have that relationship and kind of that handshake and understanding that I, I will be in the vineyard with you each year as long as uh, the fruit and the program continues to align. That, that's so interesting. And I, I can imagine that whatever you work out with each of the individual relationships can always change based on that. But it, it's so interesting to hear that even independents are in a position where they're getting downward pressure because of mm. conglomerates coming in and sourcing from as many from a region as they possibly can for these larger corporate brands. So um, it, it's so interesting. And thanks for sharing. Um, Maybe just my last question of the day would be just to ask you about where do you hope your brand's going to be 10 years from now? What, what are some of the things on, on the horizon that you really hope to achieve or change or modify based on what you're doing today versus where you hope to go? Great question. I think the guiding light for me with my business is always the intention behind it. And what my intention is and has always been is to be true and authentic to what resonates with me because I think then that resonates with others, you know? So it's in that, what does the next 10 years present? I don't know a hundred percent, you know, but with that guiding principle, what I hope it will bring is expansion in a way that continues to focus on quality, not expansion in the broader market, but maybe more in experience. You know, that might look like having a public location that's really fun and hip downtown Napa or somewhere else. I, you know, again, who knows where that presents? Maybe it's not. Maybe it's more in the sense of taking the wines out on the road, you know, and really kind of being a brand that creates experiences outside of Napa Valley. So I think there's a lot of opportunity that will present itself. And I'm certainly open to that expansion, I think that will naturally take place if the authenticity and the quality continues to be the center of the brand. Amazing. So staying true to the values that you founded the business upon. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your brand with us. Thanks for sharing your journey. We hope to see you soon, but we're very excited to do an NFT collection with you. Me we'll too. be sharing more on that soon. So awesome. thank you so much. Thank you.